I want to begin today by asking um, a number of questions, and I want you to just think about the answers. I'm going to ask our friend Gwen if she would push a little button for me so that I don't have a crooked neck at the end of this sermon, and uh, that will really help me. But here's the first one. How many human authors wrote the Bible? The answer is 40. Second question, which book of the Bible is the oldest? And the answer is Job. Uh, Job predated Moses. He lived about uh, the same time as Abraham and the other patriarchs, and so his book is the oldest. And then this question, over how many years was the Bible written? And the answer is about 2,000. From the age of the patriarchs to the age of the apostles is about 2,000 years. And then finally, who is the central theme of the Bible? Yes, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think with me for just a moment. If we have a book by that many authors over that many years with one central theme, what does that tell us? Well, I think it tells us ultimately... One author gave the Bible. Doesn't it say that? In fact, this is what 2 Timothy 3.16 actually tells us. Let's read it together. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, if that many authors over that many years have one central theme, then that is a strong indication that there is one mind, God's mind behind the Bible. As I was uh, contemplating this, by accident, I came across a new book that is being released next month. It is a book written by a man by the name of Joseph Farah, and it is entitled, The Gospel in every book of the Old Testament. And I want you to notice two of the reasons why Joseph Farah said he did this study and published this book, which will come out next month. Look at what he says. The Bible is one continuous, fully integrated story from creation to the fall to redemption and restoration. The Bible is a thoroughly miraculous book that could only have been compiled through the inspiration of God. Now, Mr. Farah says his third purpose in writing this book is to encourage Christians to study more and afresh the Old Testament to increase our faith in the reliability of God's Word. Now, as I saw that and uh, stumbled across it, I thought to myself, if there's any place that we see Christ and the gospel, it is in the life of Joseph. Now, I have preached uh, 15 messages so far in the life of Joseph. There are about five or six yet to go. And a few times as we have been looking at his wonderful life, I have pointed out that it points to Christ and the gospel. Now, what I want to do today is I want us to see more clearly Christ and the gospel in the life of Joseph, that we might love God more and trust his book even more. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 22, and that's where I want to begin this morning. You'll find that about uh, page 19 in the chair Bible in front of you is where we're going to be starting 
And so you can follow along by grabbing the chair Bible. Let's take a moment, shall we? And let's pray together. Father, truly we have a wonderful book in our hands. And truly there is one great mind, your mind, behind it. And truly the great theme is Christ and His glorious gospel. And wherever we turn, we find this theme woven together that we might see your plan and understand that you have given to us an exact place where we can find all that you want us to know to bring us to yourself. So bless us now as we see that this morning. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I want to begin with the first example. And the first example of Christ and the gospel in the life of Joseph is substitutionary sacrifice points to Christ and the gospel. Now, as we think about this, there are a few things we need to see. First of all, there are two uses of a very important little phrase. We might skip over it, instead of, and they anticipate Christ. Those two phrases are found in Genesis 22:13 and chapter 44, verse 33. And then as we look at that second passage, we're going to see why Jesus was born into the tribe of Judah. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why was Jesus from the tribe of Judah rather than Reuben or Simeon or Gad or Benjamin? Well, the Bible very clearly answers that, and we're going to see it this morning. Now, let's begin, shall we, first of all, here with the first use of instead of. In Genesis 22, God called Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac in the land of Moriah. Look at verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, if we were to look at a map of where Abraham went, we would discover that Mount Moriah is in the region where Jerusalem later became David's capital city. In fact, there are three major mountains, as you can see from this map, in the vicinity there of Jerusalem, Mount Olivet, Mount Moriah, and Mount Zion. It's interesting that when Josephus, the Jewish historian, gave a description of Jerusalem, he said it was built on two major mountains. He said Upper Jerusalem was built on Mount Moriah, and Lower Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion. Now, you know what this means? Jesus was sacrificed in the same place Abraham prepared to sacrifice Isaac. How many of you think that was accidental? How many of you think that was a coincidence? You remember what happened? God stopped Abraham at the last second. Look at verse 12. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then you remember what happened. In the next verse, there was a ram that was caught in a thicket. Look at it. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So the ram became a substitute for Isaac. Now, 2,000 years later, in the very same place, Jesus was offered instead of us as our sacrifice. It is very clear God wants us to make this connection. Abraham's only son was spared, but God's only son was not spared, and he became our substitutionary sacrifice. Now, I want you to turn with me a little bit ahead, this time to chapter 44. We we have been looking at the life of Joseph. And I want you to notice what Judah did on behalf of his his brother Benjamin, which we have seen as we have been looking at these verses, how he offered to sacrifice himself by becoming the servant in the place of Benjamin and remaining as a slave in Egypt. And notice what verse 33 says. Now, therefore, please let your servant Judah remain instead of the boy Benjamin as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. This is a most remarkable thing as we have been learning because it was Judah's idea to sell Benjamin two decades previously. And now he becomes, in this verse, the very first example in the Bible of a human substitutionary sacrifice as he says, take me instead of my youngest brother. Now, this helps us understand then why Jesus was born into the tribe of Judah. Don't you see it? Don't you see it this morning? Judah later becomes the ancestor of Jesus. Jesus comes from Judah's line. Let me show you Jesus' life verse. If there's one verse that we could say, this is the life verse of Jesus, it would be Mark 10.45. It is the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark. And notice what Jesus said. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now here's what is very amazing that we do not want to miss. The Greek word for in the New Testament, in context like this, means instead of. Now what did Judah do? He offered to be a servant instead of Benjamin. What did Jesus say he came to do? He came to be our servant by offering his life as a payment instead of ours. Do you see? Genesis 44.33 parallels Mark 10.45 precisely. Servant instead of parallels serve instead of. Jesus was born into the tribe of Judah because Judah prefigured Jesus. 
But there's another reason. There's another reason. Judah was a great sinner, wasn't he? Oh, yes, he was. He was one of the worst of the brothers. He was probably as much calloused as any of the other ten. Now, let me ask you this question. Who did Jesus come for? Would you read Luke 5, 32 with me? Let's read it together. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who did Jesus come for? He came for sinners. And another reason why Jesus came from the tribe of Judah is because He came to save the greatest of sinners. Now, let me ask you again, how many of you think this is an accident? How many of you think this is coincidental? God had a great plan, didn't He? God had a great plan. By the way, this shows God's sovereignty in salvation. There is no human reason why Judah should have been changed and saved. Everything that changed him was God's work and not his that brought him to repentance. And it's very clear that God had a plan. He chose Judah. He worked in his heart. He drew him to salvation because he would ultimately foreshadow Christ. And what we can see here is one author weave together the Bible with all the connections so that we would not miss it. And if you are a Christian, you are a part of this great plan that God is working out. Now, I want you to see with me this morning another example that shows this very, very thing. Secondly, we learn from the life of Jodah, Joseph, that salvation by a great deliverance points to Christ and the gospel. Would you turn ahead with me to uh, chapter 45, and I want you to notice verse 7. This is Joseph's great explanation of God's purpose as to why he was sold by his brothers, went through all that he went through, and ultimately became the leader in Egypt. Look at verse 7 and notice what it says. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many many survivors. Do you know what this sounds very much like? In the very last chapter of Genesis, Judah, or Joseph will say to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And verse 7 is the very same thing. When he talks here about a great deliverance and many survivors, he's talking about more than just the physical well-being and safety of the family of Jacob in Egypt from the famine that they suffered. Look at two very key words in verse 7, the word remnant and the word survivors. In the Old Testament, those words are used often to refer to believers who would experience salvation and enter into heaven. 
In fact, some of our translations translate the last phrase in verse 7, keep alive for you many survivors in this way, to save your lives by a great deliverance. If you have the New International Version in your hands this morning, you will notice that's how it's translated. To save your lives by a great deliverance. Now, what's going on here? Well, God is beginning to fulfill His promise to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth through the Jewish people. And this great salvation that He said was going to come is ultimately accomplished in Jesus Christ who came into the world as a Jew. In fact, it's really amazing in John 8:56, this is what Jesus could say. He said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. And so right here, as Joseph says to us, this is the great purpose of God, we see the plan that starts to take shape that ultimately would lead to not only the salvation of many in this world, but to your salvation and my salvation if we are Christians. Now I want you to see this in a very fascinating way. Joseph's bringing of salvation to the little family of Israel parallels Jesus' bringing of salvation to the entire world. Let's look at it for uh, just a moment. If you have never seen this, it opens your eyes to the wonders of what God is showing us in His Word. We know from Genesis 37.3 that Joseph was the favored son. And what did Jesus say about himself in John 17.24? He said, the father loved me before the foundation of the world. He was God's favored son. We know that Joseph was hated by his brethren. And Jesus said in John 15.25, they hated me without a cause. We know in Genesis 37 that Joseph was sold for pieces of silver. And in John 19, Judas betrayed Jesus for pieces of silver. In Genesis 37, 28, the brothers cruelly took Joseph and they stripped him of his garments. And we know that when Jesus was crucified, the soldiers stripped him of his garments and they gambled for his coat. We know in Genesis 37:31 to cover up their deed, the brothers dipped Joseph's robe in blood, and Revelation 19:13 says that when Jesus comes again, he will be wearing a robe dipped in blood. In fact, let me show you something extremely fascinating. There are only two places in all of scripture where it says a robe is dipped in blood. The first one is in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 37:31, And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. The only other time that phrase occurs is in the last book of the Bible. 
In Genesis 19.13, when Jesus comes again, and it says He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which He is called is the Word of God. The first reference is to Joseph who saved the nation Israel. The second reference is to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Let me ask you, how many think this is by accident? How many think this is coincidental? This is God's plan, weaving one story together in His Word. And then notice what continued to take place. Joseph was sent on a mission three times. He says that in chapter 45. And Jesus says, the Father sent me in John 17, 18. Joseph says the purpose was so that many survivors would be saved. And as we saw, Jesus said, I came that I might ransom many. And then Joseph said, this is why in chapter 45, verse 8, that he became Lord over all Egypt. And Acts 10.36 says, Jesus is Lord. And then finally, Joseph became poor, that he might rise again and become rich, so that he could make rich provision for his family. And 2 Corinthians 8.9 tells us that Jesus became poor, was exalted again and became rich, that he might extend the riches of salvation to all who believe in Him. Remember where we started in this message? Remember why this book, the Gospel, and every book of the Old Testament is being published next week? Remember this? The Bible is one continuous, fully integrated story from creation to the fall to redemption and restoration. And the Bible is a thoroughly miraculous book that could only have been compiled through the inspiration of God. I want you to think about this. God used 40 authors over 2,000 years to tell us one love story. It explains our predicament, doesn't it? How we got into the mess we're in because of sin. And then it explains God's remedy how He can be both a just God and a loving God at the same time and make a way of salvation. And then it explains God's Savior, why only Jesus can meet our need as the God-man who became our Redeemer. What a wonderful book and plan God has given to us to show us the entire story. Now, let me show you one more this morning because there's so many of these. But here's one more that I find extremely fascinating as we look at what God is trying to show us. Number three, the reconciliation of the twelve sons of Israel point to Christ and the gospel. Look with me, if you would, at uh, chapter 45, and I want you to notice verses 14 and 15. And this incredible reconciliation that comes two decades after Joseph had been cruelly separated from his brothers. Look at verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. 
And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talk with him. Now, I want you to ask you this morning, what was eliminated that had been there before in this great reunion? Now, talk about a group hug, right? I mean, this is an amazing group hug. All 12, from Reuben down to Benjamin, are all there. And I want to ask you this question as we look at this. What was eliminated that had been there before? Well, clearly pain was eliminated, wasn't it? Because these were tears of joy. Three times it says they wept together, and these were the weeping of tears of joy because the pain had been eliminated. Clearly also hatred was eliminated because it says he kissed all his brothers. These were kisses of love. Before there had been hatred, before there had been rejection, before there had been hard feelings and anger, but now that has all been eliminated. These were kisses of love. Notice that alienation was eliminated because these were friends who now were talking. There was no longer the enmity that kept them from talking to one another. Also, death was eliminated. Joseph was alive. He was well. It was as though he had been resurrected from the dead. And then finally, family disintegration was eliminated. Jacob would once again become the father of a united, not fractured family. Have you ever seen all those things that were eliminated in this glad reunion? Pain, hatred, alienation, death, family disintegration. By the way, do we experience some of those things? Yes, we do, don't we? Yes, we do. Let me ask you, when will those things be eliminated for us? They will be eliminated in heaven. Let me ask you another question. Where else do we see these 12 brothers mentioned again in a reunion like this? Are you tracking with me? Turn to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21. And I want you to notice something that is absolutely incredible. It's one of those mind-blowing things that causes you to say, There's one author behind the Bible. There's one great story and one great plan. Look at Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. 
many artists have sought to illustrate what heaven will look like. And it's very clear that the description here of heaven is of a cubed city. But I want you to drop down to verse 12, and I want you to notice something at the end of the verse. There are 12 gates on this city, and notice what it says. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels... And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the, what? Sons of Israel were inscribed. When is the final time that we see the twelve sons of Jacob in a reunion with all the things eliminated, like we see in Genesis 45, and it's in heaven, the new Jerusalem, the holy city. In fact, look back with me in Revelation 21 at verses 3 and 4. And notice how all the things eliminated in Genesis 45 will be eliminated in heaven. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Family disintegration will be gone because God himself will be with them. Alienation will be gone because they will be his people. Pain will be eliminated because there will be no more pain. Death will be eliminated because death will be no more. And hatred will be eliminated because He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Do you see this? Do you see this this morning? What we see in Genesis with Joseph and his brothers is a foreshadowing of heaven. One Bible teacher has said this, Here the sons of Israel, whose names will appear on the gates of the heavenly city, are giving us an advanced picture of the unity that belongs to a forgiven community. It's an advanced picture of the unity that one day will belong to a forgiven community. Do you see it all this morning? God has one book, one message, one plan, one eternal home, and one invitation. In fact, let's read that invitation together this morning. Would you join me? And let's read Revelation twenty-two, seventeen, and the invitation 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you join me? Come. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. Let's bow our heads this morning together and let's close our eyes. And as we prepare to close our service this morning, I just want to ask you, Have you come to trust in this Savior who from the beginning to the very end is God's plan for your sin? You're alienated from God by your wicked works. There's nothing that you can do to heal the breach. And if you die in your sins, the Bible says you will experience the wrath of God. You'll be lost forever. But God had a great plan. From the very beginning, His plan was to send His own Son in the likeness of human flesh, that He might go to the cross and uh, provide for us by the offering of a perfect and holy and righteous life, a sacrifice that would satisfy God's justice against sin. He would rise again from the dead, proving that God had accepted that sacrifice. And by overcoming death, He would offer life and eternal life to those who would receive Him. And God wants us to know that plan and embrace that Savior and come into His family so much that He has given us a marvelous book that so beautifully shows His plan weaved from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Listen, if you're not sure where you stand with the Lord today, you're not sure that you belong to the Savior, that you're a member of the family of God, if there is doubt that your life has been transformed by the power of God through what Christ has done for you, you can come to know Him today. The Bible says to know Jesus is to know life eternal. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know me, the only Son of God, and the Father who sent me. And you can, in your heart of hearts this morning, say something like this, with your head bowed, your eyes closed. You can say this in inaudible words. Lord Jesus Christ, I I believe that I am a sinner. The honest truth is I'm not much different than those ten older brothers. I've lived a life that is selfish and and all about me and my desires and my direction. And I recognize that I stand condemned before you. But then you can say, Lord Jesus, I believe who you are. That you are the only Son of God. That you were sent into the world. That you died on the cross to take my place. You died instead of me as my servant And you paid the price for my sins. You rose again to prove that God had accepted your sacrifice. You conquered death that I might have new life and live forever someday in heaven. And then you can say, Lord Jesus, right this very moment I am repenting. 
I'm turning from my own way. And I'm turning to you. You can say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and be my Savior. Come into my life and be my Lord. Forgive me of all of my sins. Grant to me the gift of eternal life. Make me a child of God. And then you can say, Lord Jesus, from this day forward, though I know I will not do it perfectly, I will still fail. My intention is to follow you all the days of my life. And you may say, Lord Jesus, thank you for saving me. Father, today, thank you that the Spirit of God is present. Thank you that He can take the things of Christ and He can reveal them to us. And He can show us Christ shining forth from the pages of the Word of God. And by His work in our hearts, He can open our eyes. He can soften hardened hearts. And He can bring us to faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, O Lord, today that you would do that very thing in the lives of men and women, boys and girls. How we love you for your gracious invitation. Come. 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 Take of the water of life without cost. For your sake we pray. Amen.